Good morning. You guys kind of look barbecued up. How many, how many of you guys could use some good news today? Okay, there's some hands going. I took a minute to register. Does that mean I need to say sentences and wait a minute to, kind of for it to settle in? So, so basically, it's kind of like beef lag or pork lag is what, that what's going on? Just kidding. I mean, that was Wednesday. I mean, you've had a few days to get up. It's the heat. That's what it is. The heat slowing us down. Is that it? That's good. That's good. That, that, that makes sense now. Okay. So today we're starting a new series on the book of Colossians. I love the book of Colossians. Whenever you hear me say Jesus is the answer, the reason I say Jesus is the answer is because of the book of Colossians. Okay. That's, that's where I encountered that reality. Uh, and then in this series, we're talking about how Jesus is enough and how that the writer of Colossians, who was a guy named Paul, who we talk about all the time, that he was trying to teach this church what, what they needed, what, what satisfied everything. But he talks, he starts the letter talking about the concept of, of good news. Do you hate it? I hate this. When people come to me and say, what well, do you want, the good news or the bad news? Do you like that? I'm like, oh. How many of you guys say bad news? Who are the bad news people? Own it. Come on. Who are the bad news people? All right. Okay. Who are the good news people? And the rest of you are just non-committal. Like you just leave, have good, good news, bad news. I'm out. Oh, my goodness, man. There's all kinds of them. It's like, uh, it's like the doctor calls you up and says, I've got good news and bad news. You're like, well, give me the good news. Well, you've got 24 hours to live. You're like, what? That's the good news? What's the bad news? I've been trying to call you since yesterday. <laughs> There's like a whole series of them for church. Like, like um. Miss Miss Smith says she loves your sermons. Oh, that's good news. Well, the bad news is she also loves the Kardashians. <laughs> Attendance just shot up the last two weeks. Oh, that's good news. Well, the bad news is you were on vacation. <laughs> when Michael comes back next Sunday, you can tell him that one, okay? <laughs> the deacons have just voted to send you to the Holy Land, Pastor. Oh, that's good news. Bad news is they're waiting for the next war. So, I know that was harsh, wasn't it? All right, so there's that. All right. What if there was a way you could have you could have good news every day? What if you could just like live in good news? So think about this for a second. Because most of us live our lives with like a, an, an anvil over our head, like some cartoon character, like waiting for the next shoe to drop, expecting the next bad thing to happen. Am I the only one who does that? It's okay. Just look innocent, okay? But it's just as likely you will be blessed as if something difficult will come in your life, right? When I was a kid, uh, we sang a song based on Psalm 118. And uh, it was one of those round songs. It went like this. Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. You guys remember? There's a few heads in there bopping along with it. That's good. It comes out of Psalms 118, 24. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It's one of the texts that ties into that verse. I don't know if you know this or not, but in verse 22 of Psalm 118, the word of God has the scripture that Jesus quoted about himself. And in verse 22, which is just two scriptures before God saying, we, we will rejoice and be glad in this day, Jesus says that the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. So, Jesus, so Psalm 118 is showing us that there was someone coming to make every day a good day, to make every day a good news day. And that was the cornerstone. Jesus liberally applied that to himself. So today we're talking about the idea that good news just changes everything. It changes every situation. No matter what could happen, no matter what has happened, good things can come. Good news can happen. So there was a story, I think it was in L.A., this guy named Michael Cadena was attacked outside of a Target, beaten up and robbed. He's disabled. He has a syndrome where his, his fingers are fused together, can't function uh, properly or normally, not able to hold a job or anything like that. But he's a huge Dodgers fan. And so the Dodgers caught wind of this young man, he's 27, getting, getting beat up and robbed, and they decided to give him free tickets to their game, and he got to throw out the first pitch of that game. Now, it took him a month to just figure out he'd never thrown a ball in his life because his hands were, were fused together. It took him a month just to figure out how to throw the ball, but a bad thing turned into... A real good thing in this young man's life. You never know when something difficult can become good news. So let's jump into Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Paul 
chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our beloved Timothy. And we're writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. So this is the introduction to the letter. Paul's writing to this church in Colossae. There it is kind of on a map. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, but uh, it's there Anyway, blown up in those. I'm not good with maps, so be nice. Just go, ooh, map, pretty. <laughs> Never mind. Okay, it's okay. So Paul spent like three years in Ephesus, okay? You can read that story in Acts. Had an amazing ministry there. I'd love to tell you all the story of Ephesus because that was awesome. But 100 miles away is the city of Colossae. And somehow, the gospel traveled from what was happening in Ephesus to Colossae. And people heard about Jesus Christ that came to faith. Colossae was a town that was, uh, used to be really wealthy, really populous, and it was in decline. It was, its glory days were behind it. But it had a lot of baggage, you know. They had uh, a lot of beliefs, a lot of different religions. In fact, all of the cities that Paul wrote to, he's dealing with just a whole lot of religions that are there. And Paul is, of course, the, he's teaching everybody this new thing called Christianity, the way. And so these Christians in Colossae had all these different backgrounds, and so Paul's trying to help them keep their faith straight, help them wrap their heart around what's true and not lose, really, in effect, not lose the gospel. And, and so let me go on to the next uh, text here, and let's look at verse 5, okay? He's, he's talking to the church of Colossae. I jumped down a couple of verses. He says, you've had this expectation since you first heard the truth of the good news. So that, the term good news he uses a lot. The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. He's Christ's faithful servant, and he's helping us on your behalf. So, how'd the gospel, how'd the good news get to Colossae? Through a guy named Epaphras. He shared with them. And so it's important to know when you think about the good news, the story of the good news, and when we as Christians talk about good news, one of the many things it is, is it's a message. It's a story. It's, 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 a, it's a message that's primarily shared person to person. Think about that. That's how the church grew so astronomically and exponentially in the first century was a person-to-person sharing of a message. Think about that. Because we've kind of changed things since we've entered into the age of evangelism, so to speak. And what happened is somewhere along the way, probably post-Reformation, we began to separate discipleship and evangelism and we turned evangelism into its own separate thing. But in the early church, Telling people the good news was a contagious, natural thing. You didn't, you didn't have to plan on it. It just bubbled out. Think about it. Because that's kind of how we approach it nowadays. We're like, well, I want to tell my friend about Jesus. And we put together a seven-point strategy. Of, I'm going to have him over for July 4th, and I'm going to make him a big cake, and then, then barbecue, if that's if you eat dessert first, I guess. Oops. And then when they're all fat and happy, then I'm going to talk to them about Jesus. Because, you know, for some reason, Jesus just kind of is a wet blanket on a room, we kind of think. However, it wasn't that way when Jesus was here, was it? He wasn't the wet blanket on the room. He got invited to the parties. Wrap your head around that one. And so, anyway, this good news about Jesus began to, it was shared. It was a story that was told person to person. It's a story about grace. That's what... We have to wrap our heads around. It's a story about grace, God's goodness to us. That's why it's called the good news. Because, I mean, really, can you have good news if there isn't bad news? Think about it, right? I mean, why does Paul keep talking about this thing called, called good news? It's because there's an issue of something called bad news. And what's the bad news? Well, Michael, I was really down with the good news. I didn't want to hear any bad news today. Problem is, good news isn't good news until you know what the potential bad news could have been, right? And so when you come into this world, you realize that there's a lot of bad news out there. Number one bad news, you ready? Gonna lay it down on you. This is it, the foundational bad news. We're all sinners. We're not all basically good. 
And given enough money, resources, and possessions, we will treat everyone kindly. That is not true. This is why government will never solve our problems, guys. Sorry, I'm, I'm, this isn't political, this is just truth, so deal with it. It doesn't matter. It, it, well, okay, it does kind of matter what government system you're in, but as long as you have a people who are sinners, how you rule them will not change the fact of who they basically are. Do you understand? So if you really want to change a country or a world, stop trying to fix the governments and start working on saving the people. That's why it's good news. If the, the thing that irritates me as a pastor, like I've been you know, doing this for a while, is that the church has the answer. We have always had the answer. If we just told the good news like it was the good news and it bubbled out of us rather than us making a separate activity in our life, we turn the world around quickly because we change the people who are in it. And if you had good, righteous people in the system, it wouldn't matter as much what the system was. Now, you can bake on that all you want to. There you go. That's it. I'm, that's not political. That's just truth. Now you're thinking, no, I think it's political. Well, get over it. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just right. Anyway, so I'm just kidding. You look at us, guys, and, and you begin to, most of us like to think that we're good people, that we do things well, but the truth is we don't. The, you, even if we took the Ten Commandments, you know, Ten Commandments say don't steal. And if I, I look at you, you look like honest people, but we steal all the time. How many reputations have we stole from other people by saying things that were gossip and were our perspective and our lens rather than what was true? You ever met someone and someone came alongside you, you're about to meet them and said, well, watch out for that person and you put on your lens right away, you keep them at arm's length, then you find out that the person who told you to watch out for them, that was the one you should have watched out for? I mean, the Bible says don't lie, we lie. The Bible says don't steal, we steal. The Bible says don't commit adultery. Jesus said if you commit adultery in your mind, if you do it in your mind, whether it's adultery, whether it's murder, if you do it in your mind, it's the same thing. We've done horrible things up here, right? What's, what's my point? We're not good people. That's okay, though. Jesus died for not good people. James 2.10 person who keeps all the law except one is as guilty as a person who's broken all the laws. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. To me, it drives me crazy because I realize that, do you guys ever try and set rules in your life? I can't even keep my own rules. I don't know about you, but I can't. If, if I were the standard of righteousness, I still wouldn't go to heaven because I can't even be consistent with me. So, and it's, it's funny, I'm, I might be driving this point a little too deep, but I want to have a little fun with it just for a second. I was at the gym the other day. I know you're shocked. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to add some muscle. I don't know how your gym is set up. I hope, I hope all my fitness trainers are out this weekend. But my gym is surrounded in mirrors. I don't want to see that. I'm sitting there. I'm sweating now. Can you imagine me picking up something heavy? I mean, I rain. I don't just sweat in the gym. I rain. You think you're taking a shower? No, it's me shaking off. I, don't work out with me. I'm just saying. But I'm there, and there's this mirror, and I'm like, why in God's name? And it wasn't in God's name, but why are there all these mirrors around? I mean, so I can work on myself and look at myself, take pictures of myself, Write stories about myself so I can read about myself while I work on myself, while I look at myself? That's crazy. I had a friend, <laughs> July 4th this last week. How many of you guys got pictures at your family get-together? Come on, go ahead. I'm just trying to keep you awake. No, I'm just kidding. No one else took pictures. Okay, well, my friend did. So they, they shared on Facebook all the pictures of their family. Here's the problem. There were eight pictures, and all eight of them were selfies. Here's me and my family. There's my family back there in the background. They're all blurry, but there's me. I mean, there were eight of them. I'm like, come on, what is wrong with us, man? We are narcissistic. We are self-centered. We are all about ourselves. What's my point? There's bad news. The bad news is we are not good people. 
And we are in danger of judgment. And so Jesus, the good news is, is that Jesus came and he came to rescue us. He came to, not just, he did come to show us the way, but he came to be the way. The one who knew no sin became sin because I was sin. I didn't just do bad things. I was bad. That's a, a theological truth that has, has totally been erased from our culture and, and people try to ignore, but it doesn't take long to see that underneath the this, this, this thin veneer of civility is a nation full of people who are not good. But Jesus died. He didn't die for good people. He died for bad ones. Those were the only kind he could die for. And so Jesus came and he became sin and that's why we celebrate the cross because he died on the cross and he rose again for us. I'm gonna throw a little caveat there and I don't mean it's being an insult but I, wanna, I, I mean it to be clear. If on your best day you think you remotely deserved what Jesus did for you, that he should have done it, you don't get it, okay? That's an important thing to remember. What do I do with that? Well, I got to stop trusting me. I got to get me off of the throne of my life. And I have to start trusting Jesus and putting my hope in Jesus Christ. If I'm my only hope in life, and that's how most people live. Most people look at themselves for the answer. And the world affirms that lie all the time. Just look in yourself. But all that's really in me is darkness. And even when I find light, I find that it's a twisted version of darkness. That's why Jeremiah wrote that the human heart is desperately wicked. I have to stop trusting myself. I cannot be my only hope. If I'm my only hope, I'm doomed. That's depressing. I need good news, and I ain't good news. Jesus is good news. He died on a cross. He rose again. We start by trusting Jesus, and then we'll be forgiven of our sins this is the good news. And, and, and it's not just, it's good news because that's all there is to it. I mean, that's not all there is to it, but that's the main thing to it. It's Jesus. You don't need Jesus to end. Did you know that? Jesus is, is enough in himself. Jesus and church, Jesus and tithing, Jesus and righteousness, those don't save. That viewpoint will cause you to actually miss the good news because all those things, even though they're good, they must come from a place, not be a means to get to a place. Does that make sense? What I mean is that the righteousness, the giving, the community grows out of what Jesus has done for us and who Jesus is in us. It's not trying to get somewhere with God. That's what religion does. Religion creates a framework by which we can get to God. Jesus built a cross and died on it, that's how you get to God, that's enough. Nothing else can fulfill that, nothing else can satisfy that, that is just what it is. Now, that message of good news is going everywhere, Paul says, throughout all the land, and it's for every person. That's what Paul says, it's for every person. So it doesn't matter how good you are, because a lot of folks think, well, you know, good news, salvation, Jesus Christ, well, that's for the church folks. That's for the religious folks. That's for those guys. No, 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 no. In fact, Jesus tried to give that good news to a bunch of religious people when he was here, and they rejected it. Okay? So it's not, it's not just for them. It's for everybody. It doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter how bad you've blown it. It doesn't matter how dumb you've been. It doesn't matter what's on your chart and list of bad things that you've done that you carry around in your heart and feel guilty about every single day. It doesn't matter. The good news is, is that Jesus Christ doesn't care about where you've been. He sees where you could be. And that's what he died for. He died for your potential. He, he crucified, crucified your sinfulness. It's over. You know, I'll tell you what. Guys, think about this for a second. We got to stop trying to reform something that Jesus nailed to a cross. Do you understand? The old man, the sinful you, the bad habits you're dealing with, the sins that you're struggling with, the guilt that you're under, Jesus nailed it to a cross, buried it in the tomb, and left it there. 
that is over. God said, I can't reform that. That is done. I'm just going to kill it. I'm not dealing with that anymore. And then Jesus rose from the dead, and in rising from the dead, gave you new life, transposed upon you his life. Now you are alive in Christ. Our biggest struggle in life, as believers especially, is not that we have old mistakes behind us. It's that we don't believe we could live in the new life that's in front of us. We're always trying to fix the old when Jesus crucified it. He said, I ain't fixing that. It's over. And he rose you to new life. We need to stop living in the depression of the past and in hope for what God sees us being. That's what Jesus died for. That's what Jesus Christ rose again for. So stop living in the old man and live in the new. That's how Paul would say it in Romans chapter 8, okay? So the message is that Jesus came to rescue us. That's the good news. That's the theological part of today. Now we move into the application. How does this apply? The good news changes things. How many of you have been changed by the good news? Just give me an amen. Amen. I'm a new life through, through nothing I did. Through me saying, I give up. I, the older I get in Christ, the more I realize every year how powerful surrender is and how it's such a key piece of the gospel, of the good news. And so... I, uh, I think as I was writing this message, I was thinking about the folks that I know in this room and in this church who aren't here today who've been changed, their life totally turned around and renewed by the gospel. Overcome things that could not be overcome. Uh, I mean, not without years of therapy and lots of uh, groups and recovery groups and all that kind of stuff. I've seen Jesus do in minutes what therapy couldn't do in years. <laughs> The same good news that came to you is going out all over the world, Paul writes. And it's bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed yours from the day you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. Everybody is looking for a change. Often we are looking to turn a new leaf, new leaf excuse me, to take a step up to improve ourselves and and don't tell me you don't because there's a whole industry of books and videos and conferences out there that are making over a billion dollars a year trying to help people improve i recommend a shortcut i can save you 20 bucks on the next book Uh, jesus is the answer he is enough jesus is the he's the good news that comes and He changes your life, and he transforms you. What does that look like? I think that's important. Because I do, even though, man, I I love the love of God. I I am so stoked about grace. I love grace. But what I don't like is I don't like it when people wear a a grace shirt over lives that, that continue to be sinful and continue to reject God in its practice. I think holiness it is, uh, is not just next to godliness. I mean, no, it's cleanliness next to godliness. That holiness is part, is evidence that God is in you. And so the great thing, one of the changes that the good news brings in our life is it begins to transform us into something. Jesus used John 15 and talked about us being connected to the vine and that how he is now our source of life. And that's the good news. We are disconnected from God. And now Jesus comes. He He kills the old man, makes a new one, and connects it with the vine. When you're connected with him, you start to behave like him. That's what fruit is. So you read Galatians chapter 5, and you read about the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, self-control, all those things. All you're really learning about is is Jesus' character and his person manifesting in a person that's connected to him. So the gospel changes our lives. It moves us in a new direction. It it changes the fruit of our lives. Where before we were selfish, we were self-centered. Then we move on and we get to, Jesus grows in our life, we get to know him, and we move from that self-centeredness. We move from selfies to using a camera like it was originally meant to be used, taking pictures of other people. How many of you are like the photo taker in the family? Come on, give give me a hand up, all right? How many of you like have a whole decade of your family pictures that you're not in? Because you're the family. 
Luckily, that's changed now. You can just take pictures of yourself with your family in the background blurry. I'm sorry. I might be being a little bit of a jerk there. But anyway, so look at this. I want to show you. Well, I can't show you the verse, but it says, Paul writes this. He says, we've heard of your faith. In verse 4, he says, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people. Draw, connect the dots. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people. What's, it, what's he saying? People who've been so deeply and richly loved love others. Everyone talks about the Ten Commandments because they're written in negatives and it annoys them. But the only reason they're there is because people ignored the positive. Because in Deuteronomy 6, the positive, before you get into the law, is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And love your neighbor as yourself. If you obeyed those two, the next ten would not be a problem. God wouldn't need the negatives if we lived in the positive, which was loving God and loving our neighbors. And so, when we're reconnected through G- to Jesus Christ through the good news, we move back into that love that was always intended. The good news has the heavenly dimension. We're made right with God. We're justified. But it also has an earthly dimension. It makes us right. It delivers us from addiction, from alcohol, from drugs, from pornography, from adultery, from all those things. It delivers us from those. The gospel is the most powerful thing in the world. The gospel is the most powerful thing in the world. My wife and I are praying we want to start a we're, we're wanting to start a ministry of focus toward marriage later this year and working with an idea right now called ever after praying about it seeing what God wants us to do but here's the thing marriage and staying married and having a great marriage because I personally the idea of being married to someone my whole life and not being able to stand them to me is sounds awful okay how many, of you, I mean, how many of you have seen couples? They've been married 60 years, but they don't like each other. And you're like, I, you know, I don't want that. I don't want that for anybody because it's a lie. You know what marriage is? Ephesians 5, marriage is a picture of the gospel, of the good news. That's what it is meant to be. It's supposed to demonstrate everything that the gospel demonstrates. Sacrifice, love, forgiveness understanding, entering into another person's situation, incarnational understanding, if you want to call it that. That's what marriage is supposed to be. And that's my wife and I, something we're very, very concerned about, especially when we found out a couple months ago that Wyoming has like the high, one of the highest divorce rates in the country. And in Wyoming, it's more likely that someone will be in their third plus marriage than any other state in the union which is an interesting reality to me. It seems like people, because a lot of part of the country, people just chuck marriage to the curve, but in Wyoming, it's like we still want it, we just have no idea how to do it. And so Chris and I have been praying about that. The point that I'm trying to make, and the reason I took that little jaunt, is simply this. Marriage is a picture, it's supposed to be a picture of the gospel. The home is supposed to be the, the most profound place that the gospel is taught every day, not just in word but in action. The good news, it changes things everywhere it goes. It's so powerful. I love it. The good news changes the way we see reality. We're all trapped in our frameworks behind our lenses in this room. Now, I don't know who, where you got your lens. Maybe your parents gave it to you. Maybe your college did. Maybe your peers did. Maybe the books you read did. All of those things feed into the framework by which you interpret life. It's the language you understand and you pull it out of everything that happens around you. That's how we live our lives, inside a framework. Changing a framework in life isn't easy. It's not like a positive person, I mean a pessimist person, can just wake up one day and say, I'm just gonna be positive. How many of you pessimists in the room have tried that? I'm just gonna be positive from now on. How long did it last? We don't wanna go there. So the gospel comes into our life and it changes the way we see things. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1.9. We've not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. And we ask God to give you, listen to this, complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. What does that mean? He's saying we've asked God to give you a better framework. A framework of spirit instead of flesh. 
a framework of foolishness, I mean of wisdom instead of, I could say foolishness, but let me change that, of wisdom instead of rationality. How many of you guys know that God is not rational? Hey Moses, I want you to just walk out in the middle of that Red Sea and drive your stick down. Don't worry, I got this. Is that rational? Moses, I want you to take your stick and go to Pharaoh and take on all the armies of Egypt. Is that rational? Peter, I'd like you to step by the boat and walk on the water with me. Is that rational? God is wise. Reason and the ability to be rational are completely a construct of human philosophies and will always end up to be foolish because humans don't know what God knows. God knows how to walk on water. God knows how to make bread out of nothing. Rational people don't know that. I gotta jump on here. Verse nine, he goes on. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you grow as you learn to know God better and better. <coughs> Excuse me. And we also pray that you'll be strengthened by his glorious power. So you'll have all the endurance and patience you need and may you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. So, back to this. How, I just read that just so you can see how Paul's writing that God changes our reality. He changes how we look at life by changing that framework, by giving us that. So I've already addressed that. But then he goes on and he teaches us how to change our priorities, moving from my will to God's will. That's a, that's a key transition in a young Christian's mindset. When you first come to Christ, you've been living in your will. I do things my way. I do everything I'm big enough to do, however you say it. But then you come to Christ and realize your way stinks. You're no good at this. Living life is beyond you. And you realize Jesus Christ, he, he is the answer. So you step into that. Then you move into instead of living for me, I live for him. What is God's will here? Because that's what he's teaching me, his will. What does God want me to do? If I could stir up a little trouble here for some of you. I read a book um, several years ago by John MacArthur. John MacArthur has a lot of good things, but he kind of annoys me on other things. But he wrote this book on the will of God. This is a short little pamphlet. But here was, I'm just going to give you a quick, a, a quick conclusion to the book, how to determine the will of God. His conclusion was this. If you're living righteously, you're in the word, and all those things, then just do whatever you want to do because that must be the will of God. And he based that on Psalm, Psalm 37. How that God gives the desires, that when we desire God, he gives us those heart's desires. Now, I don't 100% disagree with John. I think God does give us our desires. I do believe that a lot of times in life, when we step forward in things that even our heart wants to do, those, are, those may come from God. But here's another thing I'd like to throw out there. John MacArthur's understanding of how God works is wrapped up in events that happened 2,000 years ago. He doesn't believe that God can speak into the moment I'm in right now. And I'm here to tell you, sometimes God can keep you from a lot of trouble if you'll just shut up and listen to him. I'm sorry, that was a little harsh, wasn't it? If you'll just stop talking, if you'll be quiet and listen, he will point you where you want to go. By the way, my, one thing I've realized in life, I've had people come to me over the years, I just want to know what God's will is. The, when I'm honest with myself, the truth is this. I very seldom actually struggle knowing what God's will is. I struggle because I don't want to do what God's will is. Now, you can think about that. And say, I don't know. Maybe I don't know. No, sometimes I don't want to know. It's like sometimes I don't want to know the trash is full at the house or that the bathroom needs clean. I'm the same way with God, okay? So God changes how we see that reality and he moves us in a place where we put his priorities above our own, but then he also moves us into a place where we, we can look at our challenges differently. So he changes the way we view life, changes our reality so that we can live life and change our priorities, but he also changes our challenges. Tough stuff happens in life. That's gonna happen. Bad things are gonna happen in life. If you go through a challenge but God isn't on the throne of your life, then it's all on you. That's a scary proposition. Now you have to decide what to do. Now you have to figure it out. Does that make sense? But when God's on the throne of your life, 
you can rest. I'm not saying do nothing. I'm saying we should worship more than we figure. We should pray more than we plan. We should rest in the fact that even though a bad thing might be happening today, God is my God. And God can work in this challenge to bring about some amazing things. I mean, there are things in your life you're praying for. They might be on the other side of your worst problem. God might need to bring the worst problem in your life so you're ready for the thing that you're praying for. That's the difference between living life as a religious person who's basically on the throne of their own lives and living life as a Christian who's dependent upon God. If I'm dependent upon God, every day is good news because no matter what happens, Jesus is still, he still died for me. He still set me free. I'm new in him. Worst thing can happen today is I die and wake up in heaven. Bring that, bring that on, I'm okay. That's a barbecue I ain't coming back from. <laughs> but when it's all on me, it's very stressful. I get filled with anxiety. And so I can look at my challenges in life very differently when I realize that Jesus Christ is my Lord and he's on the throne. Also, also, also. so much of what we're, what's being propagated in Christian books and so forth today is it's so intellectual in its understanding of God. And I don't want to dismiss it. It's really good. God gave you a brain. You should use it. But he also gave you a heart. He gave you emotions. He gave you imagination. Why do you think God gave you those things? Those are not a product of sin, by the way. They were here before sin came. They may have been corrupted. No argument there. They're here. Why did God give you those things? I'll tell you why. Because our God wants us to be a people to live outside of this reality, to see that he's God and he can change things. You realize being a Christian is more than just reading your Bible and going to church and being good. It's also about the possibility that God could change things. God's a miraculous God. I've seen God answer prayers in ways that were miraculous. I've seen God turn ornery husbands around and mean wives and, and rebellious kids. I know, I know. <laughs> No mean wives in this room, I know, I'm just, lots of honorary husbands maybe, but. I mean, have you ever thought about your marriage could be like one day away from a breakthrough if you're at a point where you're struggling. Your, your marriage could be one day away from, from a breakthrough because God's a miraculous God. Your health, some of you are struggling with health, dealing some even with terminal illness, you, you could be one day away. I mean, tomorrow could be the day, this afternoon could be the day that God shows up and turns the whole thing around. Your job. Man, a lot of people struggle with their job. I mean, I mean we all have to work for human beings, and we already discussed how bad human beings are, and, and your job, your boss is probably worse than most, right? Some of you are the boss, you know, and you're like, uh, stop now. My employees are here. Your job situation could change overnight. You could be fired tomorrow. And that could be a, the step that you needed to push you into the, the thing you've wanted to do and needed to do your whole life. It happens all the time. The good news changes the way we see everything. But it also changes, it changes what is actually true about us. And this is the... This is like the most important part of it. I mean, everything else is like application and, and you can live in it and you can live in hope, but... The truth is, is that the good news changes what's true about us. Before the good news, what's true about us, we don't want to talk about. We don't want to remember. We don't want to rehash that. But then Jesus shows up in our life, and he changes these things, and he, he changes who we are. He changes who he is in us. Paul writes it this way. He's enabled you to share in the inheritance, follow me here, in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. So he's enabled you to share an inheritance, follow me. He has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. And he's purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Think about that inheritance part for a second. You guys remember the story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son? The prodigal son, at the beginning of that story, asked his father for his inheritance which is a little rude because his dad isn't dead yet. 
If your son comes to you and says, hey, I'd like my inheritance now, he does not have good plans for that, okay? Here's the thing, though. The son took the gift of the father, blew it, ruined himself, ruined his reputation, ruined everything. All gone. Nothing left. And by the time it's all over, he's in a pig pen, and he decides, I'm going to go back to my father, and I'll just be a servant in his house. Maybe he'll just let me be a house slave. That's his thinking. He ruined it all. But what happens when he comes back home? When he comes back home, does the father say, well, you really messed up this time, buddy. You know what? I do, I'll, I'll make you a slave because now I can get even. Is that what the father does? I would, I would suggest that's exactly how a lot of people look at God. In fact, if you read the story of Luke 15, to me, one of the most amazing parts of it is, is the son, he's like got this, this monologue prepared. He comes back to the father, says, hey, I'm sorry, I'm not worthy to be your son. And I want to be, that, he dreams that up in the pig pen. And he comes back and his father's like hugging him, kissing him on the neck, and he's so glad he's home. And Jocelyn's mother, oh, sorry, there's a, there's a cool thing happening. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, he's got it all worked out. You know, he's going to go back to his dad, say, I'll be a servant, blah, 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 blah. His dad's all hugging him, kissing him, welcoming him back to the family. The son interrupts the acceptance of the father. In the story, the son interrupts the acceptance of the father to say his spiel. And so the father's embracing him and the son says, oh, 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 I got something to say, oh. And his father's like, what? And the son's like, you know, <clears throat> where's my note card? Uh, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I blew all your dough. If I could be a slave in your house, thanks, Junior. You know what the father does? Totally ignores him. Get a robe for my son. Get a ring on his finger. Kill the fatted calf. We go to party. That's what dad did. What does that tell you about us? Yes, God says to, through Paul, hey, there's an inheritance for us. The truth is we blew the inheritance. God gave Adam the inheritance, the whole earth. We blew it. Eve ate the fruit. Last night, my wife and I were talking. We think it was probably a chocolate tree, and we are less judgmental of, of Eve now. Right? Probably blowing those Cadbury eggs. Boy, how would you turn that down? Anyway. Adam blew the inheritance. There was no reason, but now Jesus comes along. He becomes the son that Adam was supposed to be, restores everything, and now we have the inheritance. So you come back to God. Oh, God, I don't deserve. I don't deserve. I've ruined it. I've wrecked it. Blah, 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 blah. And he's like, come here. I love you. <sighs> so your inheritance is restored. You're no longer the runaway son. But he also rescued us. I like a good rescue story. And every rescue story that's ever been written, imagined, or even heard that's even true is based on the true story of God sending the rescue mission of Jesus Christ to come and rescue us from our own condemnation, our own unrighteousness, our own sin. He rescued us from the kingdom of Darkness and into, that's funny, he rescued us out of one thing and into another. I love that. So good. So, bad news, we messed it up. Good news, Jesus swept in and rescued us. Even better than Bruce Willis and Die Hard or Liam Neeson and Taken 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. <laughs> when we get to Colossians 2, you're going to see he did all that on the cross, but that's beyond of where we're at today. You also see these mixing metaphors. He talks about rescuing us and purchasing us. And, and you can have a lot of fun, and you can really, uh, you really break down those metaphors, but the simple truth is your sins are forgiven. And that's the thing, that's the third reality that's changed. The inheritance changed. We've been rescued out of darkness into light, but we're forgiven. You're forgiven. I mean, God isn't forgetful by any stretch of the imagination, but I often wonder what it's like for God because, you know, I, I grew up in a very... Uh, legalistic, guilt-driven approach on faith. A lot of us did that have been to church a lot. And, and I, don't, I don't want to minimize that. I mean, I learned a lot of good things. And God really blessed me. But I found some freedom in Jesus Christ, too. 
Uh, I've learned that it's more about living in Christ than dying to self. Those are two separate things. One of them was taking care of on the cross. And the other one is happening now through Christ's power in my life. But that, that's another story. That's me working through my issues. But the simple reality is, is that I, I think sometimes when I pray and I ask God and I go back over these sins that I've committed, I, I wonder if he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I just, I just, I don't even know that you. Really? I mean, think about it. What if when Jesus covered your life in forgiveness and washed away your sins, and what if he just, just threw all of that stuff that you were out of his mind and chose not to remember it anymore and let it go? I think that's the extent of God's forgiveness. And now we belong to him and now we're free. I, I want to conclude on just this um, simple reality. Today, I've been talking about the good news, having a lot of fun with it, talking about the bad news. Didn't have much fun with that. Well, a little bit. The selfie thing still cracks me up. The good news is a message about how to become a Christian initially. And I don't want you to forget that. And if you've never given up on you and started by trusting Jesus, that's your first step. Okay? You got you to gotta take care of that. You might need some time to figure things out. I, I respect that, but also I want you to know that time is not your friend. You and I don't know how long we have in this world. And we need to keep in mind that Jesus has done so much for us. We need to, rather than argue with God and keep God on trial like a lot of people do, we need to surrender to who God is. And I realize there are some rational challenges to that. I mean, seriously, Christianity is born out of this little bitty nation in the Middle East and now affects the entire world. I get the rational problems with Christianity. I'm not trying to dismiss them. But just because something started in a way that, that isn't grand and phenomenal doesn't mean it's not true. And there's a lot of evidence for God that you need to wrestle with. But the, the first thing you've got to realize, God's good news is a message about how to become a Christian. But here's the thing for everyone else in the room. God's good news is also a message about how to live as a Christian. The gospel isn't a moment in your past. You understand that? It isn't a prayer you prayed back then. It is a way of life. That's why the early Christians were called the followers of the way. What was the way? It was the gospel. And what is the gospel? It's forgiveness. It's sacrifice. It's, dependent upon, it's dependence upon God. It's trusting Jesus instead of myself. I'm telling you, in me, there is no strength to do good things even now. I've been a Christian since I was six years of age and, and committed and dedicated to God since I was 23. Even now, I don't have the strength to get up tomorrow and do good things for God. In fact, if I get up tomorrow and decide to do good things for God, I promise you the last thing that will happen tomorrow is good things for God. Salvation is waking up. Being a Christian is waking up every day and trusting Jesus to be Jesus in you and in your life. It's a daily walk, guys. It's not your history. It's your story. It's not, it's, it, what, who you were is done. And it's today, it's about who I'm becoming. Who am I coming? becoming? Everything God sees me as becoming. You, me, we're the vision of God. He foresees the day when he looks at you and says, you did a good job. I'm glad you're home. I missed you. That's the gospel. It starts in this life. And it changes everything. Until we are ultimately, completely, and finally changed. Let's pray. You may be sitting there right now. And you've never accepted the good news. Never believed it was for you. Maybe you're still trying to figure out how to do this in your own strength. and Maybe you're still your own savior. I, I don't know. I don't know what wording would help connect this with you. Let me help you this way. 
You have to turn from your sins and your own strength, your own ability. You have to let that go. The Bible calls that repentance. And you have to turn to Jesus Christ. The Bible calls that faith. Now, how you might do that is once you've realized this in your heart and in your mind, you might pray something like this. You can pray along with me if you want to. You don't have to pray out loud, but you might pray something like this. God, I know I'm a sinner, and I know Jesus died for me. I, I, I don't want to be my God anymore. I want you to be my God. I'm trusting Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That's how simple a prayer can be like that. Because, see, Jesus is a Savior. It's not about right words. It's not about religious frameworks and activities. It's about crying out for being saved. Like if you're drowning, you don't worry about the right words to call the lifeguard. You yell help. And when I realize I'm drowning in my own sin and my own accomplishments and my own failures, then I start by trusting Jesus. I cry out to him. The rest of you in the room, you've already trusted Christ. You've, you've had that moment in your history. And I just want to challenge you to have that moment in your story every day. Every day I've got to be saved from the old ideas of me, the culture, the news, bad ideas, my own sin. Salvation doesn't really change. It's always crying out to Jesus for help. Father, I pray that you would help us to cry out to you. Lord, to, to declare you as Lord of our lives and let you set our priorities. Let you destroy our earth-driven frameworks and lenses and replace them with heaven created ones. Lord, help us to begin to live in what is true about us and stop fretting about the lies that you've crucified with Jesus. Let us live forward. Let us step forward. You are a present future God and our past is under the blood of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, today that if anyone that's here is caught up in some kind of sin, that they would just embrace your truth. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. <laughs> he doesn't just clean up our messes. He cleans our whole house. So, Lord, I pray for your, your kids. We are your kids. Help us live the gospel. Help us live good news. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is communion.